No, none of you are dressing up and collecting candy. No, me neither. <laughs> um, we're really delighted to have you here for the fall um, 2015 seminar for the Nutrition Center. Um, the, we're, we're really privileged to be contacted by Tommy because he found some of our work um, around summer feeding, and then we got to learn about his really excellent work around um, food and health and from a law perspective. So he works with the, here's my test, um, the Center for Health, uh-oh, Policy and Law, thank you, yeah. and Policy Innovation. Right. I knew I was going to forget one of those words. Um, and he's a student in uh, the Harvard Law School and the Kennedy School. So we're really lucky to have him here, a South Carolina native, coming back down to join us and talk a little bit about food and law um, from a health perspective, and especially relating that to the charitable food system and food assistance programs. So we're, um, we have lots of folks online on Adobe Connect with us as well. So welcome. We're delighted to have you here. Um, and um, to the folks in the room at the end, we'll have plenty of time for discussion and questions as well. So welcome, Tommy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for inviting me here today. As Sonia said, I am a native of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I was born in Charlotte, so I've uh, grown, grown up here in the, in the Carolinas. I'm a student at the law school and the Kennedy School at Harvard, and I'm also a teaching fellow in the economics department. Um, I, before I begin my remarks today, I wish to, to thank my hosts at the Arnold School and the, the center. Uh, the projects of the Arnold School, uh, particularly those of my host today, address critical issues for South Carolina's residents. I first learned at the center, as Sonia mentioned, uh, putting together a piece for the state newspaper and uh, about summer food programs here in South Carolina. I had the good fortune to read the excellent 2014 study, and I understand that there has been subsequent work in that area, um, published by Dr. Jones and her collaborators. Uh, the work that you do helps improve the lives of our fellow South Carolinians. Thank you for the invitation, and thank you for the work that you do. So I'm going to put my notes up. And if anyone can't hear me on the chat, let me know. Sonia and I are on uh, the chat. So um, let, let us know if you can't hear and experience any technical issues. I'm excited also to uh, introduce to you the CHILPI. They have a clever acronym, Center for Health, Law, and Policy Innovation. Um, the center is based out of Harvard Law School. Members of its staff are primarily lawyers, including its leadership, Robert Greenwald and Professor Emily Broadley. The center doesn't provide legal representation uh, or legal advice. Instead, the center provides technical assistance and information to organizations and government around the country to promote law and policy reform. These reforms improve the lives of citizens, especially those in underserved populations. Uh, the center has two associated law school clinics, a health law and policy clinic and the food law and policy clinic. The associated professors and clinical fellows teach courses throughout the year at Harvard Law School and advise student projects. I was a clinical student in the spring of 2015 on a project with Feeding America, the nation's largest network of food banks. I will discuss that pro project in greater detail later, but I'm here, here to inform you about the work of the center, particularly working, work, the work related to diabetes policy, projects here in the Carolinas, and food as prevention and food as medicine. Food as prevention and food as medicine are two focus areas for the center, and I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into their work there. My goal today is to introduce you to the, the work of the center, to tell you about some of the experiences I had with the center, and discuss some of the current projects at the intersection of food and health. 
Uh, for further information about the center, I, reach out, I, I would recommend reaching out to representatives, including Sarah Downer, whose contact information will be uh, at the end. She was served as my supervising attorney on the Feeding America project. Chilpi is a very active center. Um, I, 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 I found out today that the center is also very active here with more than 80 projects, publications over two years, incredible work, um, uh, excellent, excellent work here. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about the work at, at the Center for Food, Health, Law, and Policy Innovation. I'll start with, uh, by focusing on areas that might be particular focused to this audience here in the Carolinas. Um, two projects are one, the Feeding America Technical Assistance Project that implicates food banks throughout the country and particularly here in, the South, in North and South Carolina. And then state resources, two projects, one on PATHS, a state report in North Carolina, and SHARP, which is an acronym that makes sense when it's spelled out, uh, but it's about state um, health reform. And then secondly, uh, CHOPI has a CHOPI Center for Health, Law, and Policy Innovation. Uh, has a number of materials for free download on its website um, that would be uh, particularly helpful for folks. I hate the mouse. Oh, oh. Are we back? <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, it would be particularly helpful for folks who want to learn more about food as prevention and food as medicine. We'll get into those terms later on. Um, primarily what that is trying to get at is uh, food being used to prevent or mitigate the uh, effects of chronic disease or being used to, as, as part of a treatment plan for those with a chronic disease and having been diagnosed as such. In fact, just yesterday, last night, uh, the Chilpi Center hosted a symposium on food as medicine, and I brought materials here today about the, the reports, which are available online as well, um, and um, some of the speakers, uh, the, the agenda from la last night's symposium. Are they, I don't know if the animations are showing up, but we'll make do. We'll begin with one particular particular project, the te technical assistance project for Feeding America, uh, which has several member food banks here in the Carolinas. This project focused on food banks as partners in health promotion. Uh, Feeding America's network of food banks serves 46 million Americans every year, and they've come to realize through studies like the Hungry American study that just came out, that the needs of the food bank's clients don't stop at the food bank's door. 33% of clients in Feeding America, according to the latest Hungry America study, have at least one member with diabetes. For hypertension, that number is 58%. And the costs of care are also concerning for food bank clients. Nationwide, 29%, nearly a third of all clients, at client households have no health insurance coverage, including Medicaid or Medicare. Recent data show that more than half of food bank clients have unpaid medical bills, and two-thirds have clients that had to choose between paying for medicine, uh, and pay medical bills, and paying for food. And 31% of cl client households reported facing that trade-off every month. Food bank clients who are low income and struggle with food insecurity also often struggle with several factors that increase their risk of developing chronic diet-related diseases uh, and health issues and exacerbate those conditions 
uh, exacerbate these conditions for those who already live with these chronic diet-related diseases. These factors include limited financial resources, lack of access to healthy, affordable foods, and limited access to basic health care. Uh, as you know, as the center is well aware, many of the chronic diet-related disease, many of the chronic diseases ailing America today are diet-related, obesity, cardiovascular disease, among others. So the focus was to get, look at breaking down the complex changes in the healthcare landscape to a food bank audience. In this project, we focused on five specific areas, five specific changes, uh, largely with regard to the uh, enactment of the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, that were relevant for a food bank audience. Uh, we looked at a shift from pay for performance to uh, so shift from fee for service to pay for performance, and an increased focus on completing the triple aim of healthcare, that is, improving the health at the population level, improving patient care, and the lowering the cost of care. We also looked at the effects of Medicaid expansion under the ACA. We looked at hospital readmission policies and penalties, largely under CMS, which is the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services. Uh, enhanced requirements for nonprofit hospitals seeking to meet the community benefit standard and demonstration projects from the Center for Medicaid, Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. As you see here, we have included the, the triple aim of healthcare. We focused on operationalizing these goals, breaking them down so that food, individual food banks and food bank directors could better understand who we're talking about when we're talking about the healthcare landscape. We're talking about hospitals, providers, payers, both public and private, as well as uh, other, other participants in the, food, uh, food, uh, the healthcare landscape. Our idea here was to really reinforce to food banks that food is a, as a social determinant of health. And in doing that, we thought about looking, informing them about how payments are shifting within the food, healthcare landscape from fee-for-service, that is an incentive for a provider to provide more services because they get more fees to one where Center, Center for Medicaid and Medicare uh, services uh, in, in the federal government has moved to now a payment model for pay for performance, emphasizing the health of overall communities. A quick aside, um, uh, Medicare uh, and Medicaid are two different programs. Medicaid is a federal program administered at the state level with a bit more flexible requirements, primarily serving low-income Americans, whereas Medicare uh, serve, serves uh, uh, the, the uh, older Americans generally, as well as some with disabilities, and uh, is operated out, out of CMS uh, more directly. Um, we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail, but just getting that definition out of the way. As providers are being paid more for the health of overall populations, as well as health outcomes, there's a room for, there's, there's a greater incentive and greater room for conversations with food banks to talk about their role in promoting community health, and, and particularly in health promotion. Health promotion is different than healthcare services. Health promotion is, is more, uh, is, is, uh, these are two distinct concepts. It's another thing that we wanted to talk about with the food banks. As many of you are well aware, Medicaid uh, is a state op the uh, states have the option to elect to uh, 
expand Medicaid coverage to their low-income residents. The latest Kaiser Family Foundation report set, has this map of Medicaid expansion in the country. This is dated as of September of this year. As you can tell, uh, both of the Carolinas have not elected to do so. Um, currently, 60 million Americans, including one in three children in America, are on Medicaid. And this map kind of gives you a sense of what that, what that coverage looks like in various states. Um, for food banks, this means ascertaining whether the state they are located in has expanded Medicaid. If the state has done so, as several have, clients would be getting access to healthcare cover many of its, many of the food bank's clients would be getting access, new access to healthcare coverage, often for the first time. So we our recommendation was you might not need to know, you might not need to be an expert in healthcare, but they can be a partner in health promotion. Part of doing that is understanding the language that healthcare providers and other participants in the healthcare landscape know and use. Quickly running through the rest of the recommendations from that report, we're looking to uh, we're recommending to food, food banks to partner with hospitals who have greater incentive to reduce the readmissions to hospitals. Hospital readmissions are often a marker of poor quality care, and uh, if someone is dismissed from discharged from a hospital and then readmitted with 30, within 30 days, CMS has payment penalties if the rates are too high. So in helping hospitals get that rate down, food banks can be part of that conversation. Perhaps some partnerships could exist to promote the holistic care of these patients as they can go into a food bank uh, or um, another food assistance project. Um, and also, we, we know that we have um, the majority of hospitals in the country are nonprofits. Being nonprofits, hospitals have favorable tax status. In order to maintain that status under the Affordable Care Act, uh, they have to, nonprofit hospitals, again, the majority of hospitals in America, have to go through a critical health needs assessment as well as a plan, a critical, uh, a community health improvement plan to, uh, to identify and then implement recommendations about the needs of its community. Uh, we think there's room for food banks to be part of that process, to bring up the fact that food insecurity is, has a relation to health, and food insecurity has a, has, has a role to play uh, in health, uh, is a role to play in promoting the, the health of the community. And if it was defined as a community health need, the hospital would then be further incentivized to do something about it and perhaps this could serve as a funding stream for food banks. Um, also, there are uh, new demonstration projects going on around the country through the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Expansion. In particular, I want to focus on Minnesota's and Texas's project. Minnesota's project provides pre-diabetic participants with vouchers to subsidize the, the cost of food uh, at farmers markets. And Texas's program, uh, which is available to patients with both a physical chronic health diagnosis and a behavioral diagnosis, uh, gives them a flexible spending account that they can use to buy nutritional and medicinal foods that are part of an individually tailored wellness action plan. Uh, the grants through CMMI, Center for Medicaid and Medicare Innovation, are 
funded through a, comp a competitive process, and partners, providers, hospitals, and their partners can apply for these innovation grants through that office's competitive process. If accepted, these uh, organizations can receive considerable funding and technical assistance to design and implement new models of healthcare delivery, often those including food. Um, we also looked at th thinking about what's the role of food banks, in particular, what's the role of food banks with it when it comes to patients with diabetes. Here we have a, a sort of one model of how that might look. Um, a client has food insecurity. They first would think about getting a community intervention like a food bank. Going further down the cycle, they might have uh, a health concern, a traditional clinic in, uh, intervention that, if left untreated, would then re may realize in a chronic or a, sorry, a, a, an acute uh, intervention need to going to the hospital. So ideally, we would stop. We would stop. We would get this intervention earlier, and stop this chain where this where this happens. Um, this report also talks about the opportunities and considerations for food banks in doing this kind of work. Um, some of the opportunities include um, adding food assistance on site at the medical provider, getting screenings at the food bank, uh, providing uh, provider providing provider, excuse me, uh, helping with provider education. Uh, as I was talking about at lunch, uh, or the Oregon Food Bank um, and um, a medical college in or the state of Oregon has a clinical, med a continuing medical education unit online and free for medical providers to get medical education that they would otherwise need for their credentialing on food insecurity. Um, we can also promote the use of health screening tools, um, one of which I was talking with Carrie earlier, um, and I have it included as an appendix here, a two-question screener to identify at the clinical intervention whether some, the person in front of them has, uh, likely, likely has food, food insecurity concerns. And of course, in undertaking this work, a food bank also has to think about itself is it, is it ready to undertake this work? Is it prepared? How are they planning for partnership? What's their plan to engage? And how are they gonna measure their success? Those interested in this report, there's a hard copy upstairs, including the executive summary. And it's also available online at the Chilpi website, as well as the Feeding America Food Bank, Healthy Food Bank Hub. That's the Feeding America project, and I wanted to focus on that because there are several member food banks here in the Carolinas. Um, Moving on to other projects here in the Carolinas. The Chilpi Center has done a number of research projects here in the Carolinas, both north and south. Today we'll be discussing a few of them here. Uh, we give particular attention to the 2014 PADS report, providing access to healthy solutions that focused on as, as uh, recommendations to improve diabetes policy in the state of North Carolina, and could be a really great model. Um, we picked, Chilpi picked North, New Jersey and North Carolina to undertake these reports, figuring that they were uh, fairly representative, and some of the lessons there can be drawn to other states as well. And that report was entitled, The Diabetes Epidemic in North Carolina, Policies for Moving Forward. 
uh, here in South Carolina. Chilpi and along with his partners from the Bristol Myers Square Foundation and Treatment Access Expansion Project undertook several projects in 2012 and 2013 to model and analyze the potential effects of the ACA and Medica possible Medicaid, Medi Medicaid expansion in the state. While these reports are a couple years old, they remain helpful guides for policymakers and advocates today. In particular, I wanted to share with you the main findings from the Medicare Expansion Toolkit and the State Health Reform Modeling Program. Um, again, these are a little bit dated right now as uh, they were a couple years ago um, and predate some of the implementation of the ACA, but can still be uh, helpful for those looking to advocate on this issue. The Sharp Report in particular contains several findings that remain salient. First, one in five South Carolina residents was uninsured at that time. According to the latest uh, Kaiser Family Foundation numbers that I looked at, that number was 15% of the total population in South Carolina, or 18% of the non-elderly population. Secondly, net savings for Medicaid expansion were estimated at $678 million over the first five years. Uh, according to the report's authors, the state's spending on newly eligibles would be offset by the savings realized in reduced spending on uncompensated care. Um, as you know, the state has not elected to um, expand Medicaid. Third, expanded access to care can provide, can, can mitigate infectiousness of some communicable diseases. One glaring statistic from the reports was that 43% of HIV positive South Carolina residents who know their status are not connected to care. If care were more affordable, that could, in the words of the report, significantly alleviate the state's HIV epidemic. Um, it's also worth noting that there, in the report, it's also, also worth noting that the report recognized that there are racial disparities uh, and in the access to care and health outcomes. African Americans in the state were significantly more likely to die of diabetes or cardiovascular disease complications than white residents. That report cited 2008 data. According to the latest Kaiser Family Foundation numbers, again, uh, these are 2013 numbers, uh, the diabetes-related mortality per 100,000 people in the population for white residents was 16.4, while it was 45.7 for African Americans in the state. For cardiovascular disease, the numbers were 170.4 for white residents and 215.8 for African American South Carolina residents. Um, in terms of the modeling, uh, the, that was primarily from the Sharp Report, State Healthcare Access Research Project. In terms of the modeling report, um, that focused particularly on HIV/AIDS uh, and Ryan White programs, and the Ryan White programs are a particular part of the of the federal programs in this area uh, that help HIV uh, HIV AIDS patients um, with health care health education case management child care early intervention clinics and some nutritional assistance um, in the model used in two, January 2013 it was found that those some of these services covered under Ryan White were not covered by Medicare or under the state's benchmark insurance plan that would be used in looking at the exchanges. Um, they found that continued Ryan White program funding was necessary, especially as systems of care for HIV positive South Carolina residents were estimated at that time to be at capacity. 
I want to particularly point you to the 2014 PATHS report in North Carolina. It's quite comprehensive. I, I really enjoyed reading this, and I really enjoyed um, sharing it with others. This was undertaken uh, un under the banner of Together on Diabetes with the Bristol Myers Squibb Bristol Foundation. And a similar report, again, was prepared for the state of New Jersey. The focus was on diabetes policies that the state could pursue. In the author's words, ultimately this report strives to put forward practical policies that have the most potential to reduce this devastating human and financial toll of this epidemic in North Carolina. The report had extensive interviews with state and community stakeholders. Um, and uh, in terms of the numbers from the report, uh, 675,000 North Carolinians had a diabetes diagnosis as of 2010. Uh, nearly 10% of all adults in the, the state were living with diabetes. Um, according to 2013 Kaiser Family Foundation numbers, now the percentage of individuals diagnosed diabetes is 11.4% in North Carolina and 12.5% in South Carolina. Uh, they vary uh, by race and ethnicity. And uh, by 2025, according to this report, the state's public and private sectors will lose an estimated $17 billion a year in medical expenses and lost productivity uh, by 2025. Uh, moving on to this, the PATH report recommendations, I'm going to speed through this a little bit. Um, they focused in two broad categories. One broad category was the health care system in North Carolina, and the second was food and physical landscape. We'll cover each in turn, but moving quickly. Addressing the social determinants of health, which include food, uh, increasing access to diabetes management services, including self-management services, um, and looking at care as a whole person a whole person model of care for diabetes. In terms of food in the physical landscape, improving SNAP participation, equipping uh, food, uh, farmers markets with EBT readers, uh, geographic access, people need to be able to walk to the supermarket, uh, increasing the number of full service grocery stores in low, low access areas, uh, taking steps to promote the sale of healthy foods in corner stores. Rather than just saying these goals, this report goes into some of the practical policy recommendations to actually get that done um, in, in that state, uh, which could be a model elsewhere. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the, this also includes uh, nutrition and cooking education, as well as increasing participation in the state's summer food programs, uh, which I thought was a really great addition. Um, and also, as well as the uh, school breakfast programs. That's the, this report is maybe 115 pages long. It's, pretty, it's a pretty intense report, um, and it's a really great resource for those in North Carolina as well as those looking to undertake similar reports in other states. Uh, Looking at the focus areas of food is prevention and food is medicine that CHOPI is undertaking, CHOPI has undertaken several projects looking at food is medicine and food is prevention. In particular, I wanted to focus on four of these projects that CHOPI has recently pursued. All of these reports and presentations are included on the CHOPI website under the Health Library section. These include Health is Prevention, the case for integrating food and nutrition interventions into healthcare, just released this past summer. Uh, food is Medicine, the case for insurance coverage for medically tailored food under the ACA. 
which was a presentation at the uh, Hunger Feeding America's Hunger Summit this past January, the Food and, and as Medicine Advocacy Toolkit, which was released this month, and Food as Medicine Opportunities in Public and Private Health Care for Supporting Nutritional Counseling and Medically Tailored Home Delivered Meals, which just rolls off the tongue, which was released in June 2014. Uh, these reports were funded in part from the Mac Aids Fund and with assistance from community servings, MANA, and other community partners. Before we dive too, too deeply into this, I wanted to define the terms and note that the evolving healthcare landscape is creating new opportunities for the integration of food and nutrition services into healthcare services. So this graphic as used in the Food as Medicine Advocacy Toolkit demonstrates there's a dividing line between services that are preventative and those that are used as treatment. On the preventative side, food as prevention, these include services that provide healthful food for those who are food insecure and medically tailored food for those at risk of acute or chronic illness. Food as prevention activities are included here at the bottom of the pyramid, and they include medically tailored food for those with prediabetes or the, those at the highest risk for developing diabetes. On the treatment side, above that dividing line, these are medically tailored food uh, services for those living with an acute or chronic illness or for those who are seriously ill. Food for those living with a diagnosed HIV AIDS uh, condition or those with diagnosed diabetes fall more on the food is medicine side of that dividing line. And I want to note that when we're talking about, when this report, these reports are talking about medically tailored meals, those are meals designed by a registered dietitian in consultation with a chef, uh, chef for specific health conditions. This report, these reports, and the suite of reports, is concerned with are these nutritious meals and do they taste good? So that's the registered dietitian with, in consultation with a chef. There's a continuum of care. Uh, here, the, the authors used food and nutrition services, not to be confused with either the USDA, FNS, or the North Carolina SNAP program, which is also, I think, called FNS. Here, we're talking about food and nutrition services in the food as medicine, food as prevention context. And we're looking at prevention, of one, prevention to treatment, as well as the severity of illness uh, on the vertical axis. So as the severity of illness and the severity of symptoms goes up, the patients uh, and clients may need more uh, treatment rather than prevention. Because the, again, the dividing line is do they have a diagnosed medical condition and is these, are these medical tailored, medically tailored meals designed to treat or mitigate uh, those, those conditions and symptoms. So focusing on Chilpi's work in these focus areas, It sits at the intersection of the, the center's health law work and the food law work. As I mentioned, CHILPI is an experiential learning program where students can work on these reports and work on reports and technical assistance projects uh, and in a law school clinic. Those law school clinics are the health law and policy clinic and the food law and policy clinic. Um, and the health law clinic has particular aims the food law clinic has particular aims. This sets the intersection of all of those aims. Fo focusing first on food as food as prevention, we're gonna move next to food as medicine. Here, we're talking about the food, and food and nutrition interventions to prevent or mitigate chronic diet-related disease. 
Food nutrition interventions can be effective at primary, secondary, and tertiary stages of prevention. In the earliest stage, they can be used to prevent disease risk factors, uh, which, has been, which have been linked to the emergence of chronic illnesses. In the secondary prevention, they can respond to early detection of conditions such as prediabetes. Um, finally, they can form part of a disease management strategy as a tertiary prevention strategy program. So they can, they can, uh, they can form part of a disease management strategy in tertiary prevention to prevent and preempt complications for individuals already diagnosed. That's near the dividing line there uh, between food as prevention and food as treatment, food as medicine. So what do these actually look like? What are these food and nutrition interventions? These food and nutrition interventions can be medically tailored meals. They can be uh, food purchasing incentives or lifestyle and nutrition education. And what can they be used for? Uh, they can be used for diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cancer, uh, and HIV-AIDS. Uh, in particular, small reductions in blood glucose levels, for example, have been correlated with fewer hospital visits, translating to health cost savings for insurers. A 1% reduction in blood glucose was estimated to decrease annual health care costs by $686 to $950 per person per year. Uh, food interventions can meet the dietary needs of diabetics and, and those, with, those with diabetes and those with prediabetes, helping to normalize blood glucose levels and reducing the occurrence of diabetes-related complications. Nutrition and lifestyle education for overweight individuals at risk for diabetes has been shown to decrease the risk of, uh, the risk of diabetes by 58%, according to the New, York, New England Journal of Medicine in 2001. Um, as we saw just this week, with processed foods like bacon, uh, uh, which was a sad study, especially since I had bacon for lunch today, um, certain types of cancer are linked with food and diet. Uh, those include colorectal, color, colon cancer, uh, uh, kidney, breast cancer, and esophageal cancer. cancer. Um, obesity has shown, been shown to increase the risk of these types of cancers, and malnutrition in general is recognized as an important component of adverse outcome, in, in adverse outcomes, including increased morbidity and mortality and decreased quality of life. Consequently, nutrition interventions aimed at decreasing obesity and facilitating proper nutrition may also reduce the incidence of various cancers. Um, and those with HIV AIDS can benefit from nutrition education as well as food assistance as adequate nutrition is a critical facet of HIV AIDS management due to its positive impact on body weight, immune system functionality, and medication effectiveness. Uh, improved diet can make some medicines used to treat infection and pneumonia in HIV positive patients and AIDS patients up to three times more effective. We know that Food and, food and nutrition interventions can lower health care costs. A study in Philadelphia uh, with the organization MANA uh, found that we found, excuse me, found that uh, this was published in the Journal of Primary, Primary Care and Community Health. 65 clients with severe illness received three meals a day for seven days a week for 12 months. A similar group of Medicaid patients did not receive any benefits. After six months in that study, the MANA group that had the intervention, uh, who was previously spending $50,000 on average per person on, on health care, six months into the study, those expenditures were $17,000. Strikingly, that group also had a 37% shorter stay in hospitals, 
but they were also 50% less likely to be hospitalized than the comparison group. And if they were hospitalized, they were also more than 20, they were more than 20% likelier than the comparison group to return home rather than to be transferred to another health facility. For HIV AIDS patients in that, in that study, the results were even more significant. Their medical costs fell by more than 80% in the first three months. Moreover, the cost of care for HIV positive MANA clients was 55% lower than the cost for the comparison group, um, con costing the management, the managed care organization, the MCO, involved in that study, an, a an average of $20,000 less per month. And the cost of healthcare, are, as that cost of healthcare are just staggering, particularly for, for diet-related diseases, uh, improvements that could lower the cost of care and improve patient outcomes are particularly attractive, can be particularly attractive to payers and insurers and providers. I, there are four examples here of uh, new, new food and nutrition interventions in the food and prevention space. Uh, first, there's the Boston Food Pantry. Uh, it's Boston Medical Center has a preventative food pantry opened more than a decade ago, and it brought together primary and second primary and specialty medical care with an on-site medical food pantry service. And uh, these fall within uh, ho the hospital's community benefit services as the suite of services that help it retain its nonprofit status. We also have Wholesome Wave and their food and vegetable prescription, which is a Connecticut-based nonprofit which operates in multiple states in the District of Columbia, which is a partnership between healthcare providers and farmers markets to serve families at risk of chronic disease. Providers enroll overweight and obese children into the program, meet with each child and the child's family, and a nutritionist periodically over the course of four to six months. At these meetings, the doctor sets the goals for healthy eating and diabetes um, and distributes fruit and vegetable prescriptions that are redeemable at participating farmers markets. The prescriptions cover about $1 of food per day for each family member. These FRX, uh, the FVRX, the food and vegetable prescriptions, have been shown to decrease the body mass index of in 38% of child participants and increase overall consumption of fruits and vegetables for the majority of participants. Um, I also wanted to highlight two more. One was the partnership between Humana and Walmart. Humana has initiated a national effort to incentivize healthier purchases for its insurance beneficiaries. Since 2012, the insurance provider teamed up with Walmart to offer a discount of up to 10% on healthy food for plan members. Over a million Humana members are eligible to receive a 5 to 10% discount when they use their Vitality Healthy Food Shopping Cards to purchase great-for-you products at Walmart stores. Great-for-you foods include produce, dairy, grains, lean meats, and foods low in sugar, sodium, and unhealthy fats. The last food and prevention intervention that I wanted to focus on was the National Diabetes Prevention Program. Uh, na this national DPP is led by the CDC uh, and is an evidence-based lifestyle intervention that has been proven to delay or prevent the onset of type 2 diabetes in individuals with prediabetes. The multi-week program focuses on the education of participants and encourages them to reach weight loss and exercise goals. Um, and according to a recent clinical trial um, funded by the NIH, uh, it was found to reduce participants' risk of developing diabetes by 58%. This, the national DPP represents an extremely cost-effective way to reduce diabetes-related costs for insurance providers. Um, 
participation in the national DPP constitutes a one-time investment of approximately $450 per person, but the average per, per patient healthcare expenditures for people diagnosed with diabetes are estimated at nearly $14,000 annually, of which over half, $8,000, are attributed to diabetes and diabetes complications. Some insurance companies cover participation in the national DPP, including the United Health Group, but many do not. As of 2014, Montana is the only state that covers participation in the program through Medicaid, and four states currently offer the national DPP as a benefit to state, state employees who qualify based on a diagnosis of pre-diabetes. So the report had recommendations uh, targeted to Medicare and Medicaid public payers, health, health uh, medical providers, and private insurers. Uh, that can go in further detail in the report, um, but I see them a little, bit, a little bit running short on time, focusing on what can, what can Medicare and Medicaid do, what can health providers do, and what can private insurers do to make sure that these interventions are successful. Um, and also, the, the report describes a plan for implementation that is assessing the need for food and, uh, food and nutrition services, for, forming data sharing partnerships, and giving clear guidance, particularly from the, the perspective of the insurer, giving clear guidance to demonstrate the intervention, that the interventions can be successful. What does success look like, and how, how can we collect data to report that effective, to re report on those effective interventions. Transitioning from food as prevention to food as medicine, the goal with food as medicine is to support and integrate medically tailored food and nutrition programs into the larger healthcare infrastructure to improve health incomes, to, out, to improve health outcomes and lower healthcare costs. Again, it's about achieving the triple aim. Put simply, for critically and chronically ill people, food is medicine, and here, uh, I, I know I'm running a little bit short on time, but I wanted to share a personal story, is that my father is, uh, he suffers from a chronic neurological condition, and he's done so since uh, 1996. Um, and as a result of being basically bedbound uh, from this, neuro this neurological condition, he's developed a suite of diet-related conditions, including type 2 diabetes, gout, cardiovascular disease and hypertension. Um, these kind of interventions could be really helpful. They would have been really helpful for my father to have had, so I'm really excited about this type of work because it can provide people with chronic illness uh, well-tailored meals uh, to reduce healthcare costs, to reduce food costs, and to help them achieve a better diet even while they are struggling with their symptoms. Um, these food as medicine programs and the clinics work on these programs focused out of their work on HIV AIDS. Um, many food and nutrition interventions developed out of the HIV AIDS epidemic, particularly out of the Ryan White HIV AIDS program, a discretionary federal program that provides funding for core medical and support services for low income individuals living with HIV AIDS and provides reimbursement for medical nutrition therapy as a core medical service. Um, because many of these food and nutrition interventions develop in response to the HIV AIDS epidemic, they've been traditionally reliant on the Ryan White program for their major, as one of their major sources of funding. 
as these pr programs grow, it's critical to identify opportunities for more sustainable sources of funding that are not based on discretionary appropriations and grants. Diversification of funding will help expand access to these needed services for individuals outside of the HIV community and will integrate food and nutrition interventions into larger healthcare delivery infrastructures. Um, I wanted to focus on here, we have some opportunities for uh, public payers, Medicare and Medicaid, um, in terms of nutrition counseling and home delivered meals, uh, medically tailored home delivered meals. Um, it's covered under some, it's not covered under others. Uh, Medicaid is rather flexible in terms of the states um, and can be included under some, in some, under some waivers and uh, state demonstration projects. Uh, and uh, dive into the report for more technical details about that. But at sort of the 35,000 foot level, there are things that can be done within CMS to help make sure that this is a success, um, particularly in relation to medically tailored home delivered meals and nutrition education for those struggling with the diagnosed health disorder or illness. Um, here we have some of the targeted recommendations um, for those who want to provide medically tailored home delivered meals for those with chronic health, chronic and diagnosed uh, conditions. Uh, understanding the state Medicaid, Medicaid program structure, advocate for Medicaid state plans to include these services, uh, prepare a data-driven case for medically tailored home delivered meals versus other traditionally delivered meals, and form an ongoing data collection plan. And finally, I want to talk about the food as medicine advocacy piece, because a lot of what the recommendations were, both for food as prevention and food as medicine, is are around advocacy for, for folks wanting to expand these efforts, wanting, particularly in the nonprofit space. Um, this toolkit just came out this month, and it's complementing the earlier reports by providing hands-on guidance for those who want to advocate. And the components of the toolkit include understanding advocacy as a process, uh, undertaking policy research in, in a state, what does that look like, developing an advocacy plan, uh, I was also particularly excited that this included a glossary um, because the healthcare landscape can be very complicated and describing it to those outside of the, that space can be very difficult. So having a basis, a uh, glossary to work with for advocates and those wanting to learn more about it, I thought was very helpful. Um, it was written with God's Love We Deliver and it looked at the ways that God's Love We Deliver, which is a um, New York City-based group uh, that delivers medically tailored home-delivered meals achieves that triple, their services tri achieve the triple aim, better health outcomes, improve patient satisfaction, and lower health care costs. It also looks at some of the messaging around these, these issues, uh, particularly that that nonprofit had used, um, and looking at how it achieved uh, how, how it achieves success in getting buy-in from both in, internal and, and external partners. As I mentioned, Chilpi's website has a bunch of different resources, and I wanted to show them here. Uh, that this is, these are the directors of the center, and uh, you can find the resources at chilpi.org, C-H-L-P-I.org, or diabetespolicy.org. Diabetes Policies, diabetespolicy.org, excuse me. 
uh, hosts the Providing Access to Healthy Solutions reports, as well as an ongoing blog about diabetes policies around the country. You can find the North Carolina State Report on the PATHS website, as well as the CHOPI website. And thank you. Uh, you can feel free to direct inquiries to me or to uh, the Center for Health Law and Policy Innovation and directly at Sarah Downer, and her contact information is right there. Thank you so much for your time, and I welcome questions. So we're going to take, um, I'm going to speak really loudly, so hopefully your microphone over there picks me up with the folks um, online. We're going to take questions in the room, and then folks um, online can type their questions. And we have about six minutes before we wrap up. So Sure, sure. I'll, um, I'll keep my question quick so other people have time as well. Um, it's partly a question and partly um, just, I guess it is a question, maybe you can elaborate on a program. Um, thank you for your presentation. Um, the program you mentioned, the, was it MANA or MANA? I think it's MANA. MANA the MANA program. Mm -hmm. uh, I was really curious to know more about that and other related programs, especially this idea of tailored home-delivered meals and um, the, the, maybe some of the thinking that's being, uh, that's generating that or sort of driving that because I had a couple of thoughts and the first was whether there have been any considerations of parallels between those incredible findings with reductions in healthcare costs and improved health outcomes in relation to some of the literature on home delivered meals that has been done uh, 20, 30 years ago showing that that regular contact Mm -hmm. Having another human being come and connect once or twice or three times a week improves health outcomes because they're the personal relationship, but that check-in, that sort of you're cared for, um, and also alert people if there are problems that, that, that really can help to improve someone's health. A whole host of sort of sociological and personal um, outcomes that come from just that simple contact, irregardless of the food. But the food is still the, the kind of the moment. Um, and then in going along that line, thinking about this as sort of an institutionalization uh, of being a good neighbor, right? The idea of meal trains, we just had a flood here. We're all being good neighbors right now. We're helping out people by making meals who don't have houses. Or, and the food is an important part. How many of you donated food? Or we're involved in food donation, or we're asked to donate food to help people who didn't have food. So that being a good neighbor and kind of the pros and cons of it being too decentralized versus decentralized and kind of leading along that train of thought that it's not just the food, it's the being a good neighbor in the community building. I wonder whether your group has considered um, or has taken steps to not overemphasize the nutritive component, having the greatest, being the causal agent, so to speak, but that that's the, uh, what would you say, maybe the avenue through which we deliver all of that, oh boy, I'm gonna get really sappy here. <laughs> we deliver that love, or that being a good neighbor, and those outcomes are, the food is the venue, but a lot more is involved. And if we reduce it to just nutrients, we might lose all of those other positive pieces. So I've wondered if that, that has come into the conversation at all. I, I think it has. Uh, I think it could to a greater extent, um, at least in, in these reports, there's not been that much uh, there's been much more on what's happening now rather than the original research. Um, and there is, a dis there is, they do make efforts to distinguish home delivered meals from these medically tailored meals. Um, some of these programs also offer, uh, I think it's a really good point. I think some of these programs also offer nutritional counseling 
in particular, uh, God's Love We Deliver um, delivers both the meals and has a uh, counseling component to their work. So I, I don't know if that, I don't think that was the subject of a, as rigorous a study as the MANA program, but I, I, I can imagine that both the food and the counseling paired together can make it, in addition to the participation effect, could make a, re, a, a very uh, powerful combination for those struggling with disease. I think I'm going to take that back, and I think that's a really good point to. Emphasize the personal contact of someone who comes in a friendship capacity, not yeah. just a, I'm here to give you something. Yeah. That's the that is the beauty of the Meals on Wheels program. Those are volunteers from the community that do the contacting and they develop this rapport so it goes deeper than this expert sick person kind of dynamic so I, yeah i think it's a great, i think it's a great point and i think it's also uh, i think the way they the center's chosen to frame it is to try to think about how to frame this in in the language of healthcare so that then it can be possibly funded through funding streams relating to insurance and public payers and but Exactly. So, how how to actually tie it to a code in in a, in a in a diagnosis and get it into the medical practice area? And the, the more so the more studies that happen like this, and the more we can think about some some of the other positive uh, effects, the better. Thank you so much. Um, I was on a project before I came to the Nutrition Center that developed measures on um, how to measure trust and reciprocity in community members and community groups. And we found that the measures were then um, correlated with mental health. When mental health, then it impacts physical health. And so I think, I mean, there are ways to establish these pathways. And, um, and I agree with you. I think when the context is ignored, um, then we may overemphasize results or underemphasize results and it loses sort of its sharpness. So I, um, I wanted to clarify something about what you're saying and make sure that I'm understanding. Are, could I boil down some of the messages that you've delivered here today to say that now, because of these healthcare innovations, hospitals and healthcare providers are finding a way to provide direct food assistance and be reimbursed for that, that food assistance? I, I would say, I wouldn't say it that strongly. I would say that there is greater incentive for those kind of programs. Okay. And it, it, under the ACA, they have they have particular incentives to make sure that the patients are healthy, mm -hmm. and these programs, food as prevention, food as medicine, are avenues to do that. Um, and providers could partner with those that provide these medically tailored foods to act to increase the overall health of their patient populations and to avoid them going back to the hospital within 30 days, for example. Okay. So it can be part of the comprehensive plan mm -hmm. to uh, adapt to some of these healthcare changes. So who's paying? And maybe it's a variety of, of folks, but you're saying it's not CMS that's paying for the food. I, well, at, at this point, uh, CMS had, um, funds nutrition education uh, through, part of, through part of its programs. Uh, medically tailored meals are uh, less funded. Um, they're funded through some, I think they're funded through Medicare Advantage um, and uh, the special needs program. Um, the center has advocated that that be expanded and that also states look at possible waivers to get home delivered medically tailored meals funded through Medicaid programs, particularly through a 1915C waivers, um, which are really fun. They're, they're detailed to a great extent in the report. 
I read it before you go to bed. It's you put you right to sleep. But um, but th those are those are avenues through which it could be funded through public payers, but also private payers uh, and pri private insurers could look at hey, this could, if we invest in this, it could reduce our costs, and so as a cost saving measure, potentially incentivizing it and making the case for a private payer to, to do that. Um, we think it's 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 there there have been limited. Um, projects right now, uh, some of them we, we detail, um, and we would like to see, the center would like to see that expanded. We have uh, one question online that I'll take. Uh, Michaela says, what are some of the ways that food banks can link to hospitals? With HIPAA, would hospitals have difficulty releasing patient information? Well, that's a great question. I, I think that's true. Um, I, I, I think that yeah, there are ways to do it without releasing that information or keeping it um, with, with keeping it out, uh, keeping within the bounds of HIPAA, um, I, I I have my re my report was sort of at a thirty thousand foot level, um, and uh, I would highly recommend reaching out to Kim Prendergast, and I'm happy to reach out to this person individually. Um, thank you, Michaela, for your question uh, about how hospitals have done this, and they have Feeding America has several examples of food banks partnering with hospitals um, and other uh, food assistance uh, projects. Uh, through, through, excuse me. Feeding America has several examples of how its members have met with and worked with hospitals to deliver results and meet the triple aim, uh, and, and and get better results for their patient populations. Um, there, there's a great example out in Alabama that they've done this, as well as uh, they help out with that BMC, the Boston Medical Center Preventative Food Pantry that I mentioned earlier. So there are ways to do it. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not an expert in HIPAA, but I know that it can be done. Any other questions? So, thank, let's thank Tony. Many thanks to the folks online for joining us as well. Our next Nutrition Center seminar is November 20th, yes. and um, it, it'll be on the Smarter Lunchroom. Thank you, Michaela. Catherine Hoy will be presenting. Who she was previously the director of the, uh, um, the Ben Center at Cornell University, and now she's a PhD student here. But she's she um, ran the Smarter Lunchrooms movement for five years. Great. Thanks again. Thank you.